we had a softball team, the Avalon Hill softball team that played uh, one game a year against SPI. <laughs> so uh, it was kind of fun. Mark Herman at dinner was talking about that game. Yes. And he said that uh, that the Avalon Hill crew was much more athletic yes. than the SPI crew. Well, two of us played semi-pro baseball. Isn't that but, great? But Mark remembers well the we had won every game. We won a few before they finally won one. And we were actually in extra innings. They had the bases loaded and two outs. And we were winning by two runs. And Mark hit uh, a scorcher that would have been a home run if I didn't catch it. Oh, that's But terrific. I caught it. He remembers that. <laughs> so it was kind of cool. It left the mark. Yeah. Hey, gang. It's Harold, and here's another podcast. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with designer Bruno Sinigaglio. We met at Consum World Expo this summer. We will discuss his work updating Avalon Hill's Battle of the Bulge 1963 to Battle of the Bulge 1981, his development work on Bitter Woods, and his work on the current Time for Trumpets, a battalion-level Battle of the Bulge game currently on GMT's P500 system selling at a sweet discount. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to your feedback. Bruno Senegaglio is a game designer and mechanical engineer from Fort Wainwright, Alaska. He's worked on the 1981 Battle of the Bulge, the Siege of Jerusalem, and the Bitter Woods, as well as his newest endeavor, A Time for Trumpets. All of this through the heyday of wargaming, working with and around Avalon Hill. At the World Board Gaming Championships, he won championships in Africa Corps, Anzio, the Battle of the Bulge, Bitter Woods, Fortress Europa, Battles of the American Revolution, and Waterloo. We start this interview with a question about his work updating the 1963 version of Avalon Hill's Battle of the Bulge in the late 1970s. So I uh, uh, started going to Avalon Hill just to buy games in about uh, 1966 because they were five bucks. And I would drive there from home which so it's about like 65 miles from Baltimore. And uh, so where did you live? I lived in Pensgrove, New Jersey. Gotcha. So I met Tom Shaw, and Tom was a really nice man who would show me everything, took his time, show me around, and I would buy every game I could afford. And uh, I started working for the Army at Aberdeen Proving Ground in 1968, and that was only. 35 miles from Avalon Hill. So I would go down there on the weekend to play games. And I got to know Tom pretty well. And uh, didn't really do much about history or, or concerning the games. But in 1973, Don Greenwood took over as editor of the general. And Tom Shaw invited me down to meet Don. And uh, Don, being acerbic the way he is, you know, he didn't give me the time of day, which was fine. But uh, we went to a war game convention in New York in 74, and we, we became friends. And Don was working on redoing all the classics that would be Battle of the Bulge, Africa Corps, Waterloo, D-Day, Stalingrad, and Midway. And so um, he, he knew that I knew a lot about the Battle of the Bulge. And I was working with Harley Anton on the remake of Waterloo. All we did was redo the rules. And Harley recommended to Don that he should get me to do the Battle of the Bulge. So Don asked me to redo the Battle of the Bulge. In the meantime, we were working on uh, Africa Corps also. We, we redid the rules for Africa Corps. Don, Frank, Frank Pricely, and myself, we just did the rules, nothing else. That was the third edition rules. Jim Stoller did D-Day. Don did Midway. Uh, Don did Stalingrad. 
and I did Battle of the Bulge. So I started working on it in 74. It took me seven years. Um, completely redid the map. Uh, went to the War College uh, to do the research on the Order of Battle because the original Order of Battle was horrible. Like it only had, the Germans only had two regiments per division. Now the guy who did that game, Larry Pinsky, it was a great game. It was all we had. He also did Midway. And uh, so a little bit of research, uh, I turned that into Avalon Hill and said, it's really going to be hard to redo this without redoing the map and the counters. So they said, okay, fine, do it. And um, I finished it up in 1979 or 80. And when Avalon Hill sold out of their their uh, backlog of bulge 65s then they printed bulge 81 so they didn't release it until they <laughs> sold out of the inventory that's yes. great believe it or not they later on they found thousands of other bulge 65s so after a few years they were selling bulge 65s and bulge 81s so what was it? Tell me a little bit about what Avalon Hill was like during that time. I mean, those those of us that 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 saw Avalon Hill near the end um, have no idea what Avalon Hill was like. What, what what was the shop like when you went into Avalon Hill and their their printing offices? What was that like? Well, their printing offices were on Harford Road, and that was a uh, a new. Uh, cinder block type building uh, brick building and it was a nice new building and that was there where they did the printing avalon hill itself though was in the center of baltimore in some really old industrial buildings and you would go in there you would never expect that was going to be a game company and you know <laughs> from the outside it was a warehouse big warehouse and you know the guys had their offices don greenwood randy reed uh, mick yule and uh, Tom Shaw, and we we would play games there on the weekend, and uh, you, you just really wouldn't expect that would be a a game company. Later on, they moved out of there to a house in Baltimore, not too far away, and they just turned all the rooms into offices. And Richard Hamblin was there then, and of course the, the folks I mentioned before, Re, uh, Rex Martin was there then. Frank Davis, uh, Mick Yule, and I work with Mick on on Bulge eighty one, and uh, he was he was the developer. But we would go there and play games in this house. But what really was amazing is that I would go down there a lot as they asked me to go down and play test this or do that, and they played games for a living. That's what they did. <laughs> it was we were everybody who went in there was so envious. I mean, they made peanuts, but uh, they played games for but a they, living. But they enjoyed themselves. Yeah. They had good days. And Alan Moon was there at that time. This is before Alan branched off into, into making games that made a boatload of money for him. He was poor, right? And I know they deny this, but Alan used to sneak up into the attic and stay there at night because he couldn't afford an apartment, right? <laughs> So, uh, you know, it was cool. That's great. That's yeah. great. I had an experience with Alan Moon early when I was in, I guess I was in high school, I went to to an Origins. And uh, I think it was the one in, in at the University of Maryland or something in Baltimore. UMBC. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. And and we played, he and I played in the finals of the Wurtzee tournament. And, and I remember at the end he said, um, he said with his great accent, he said, look, if, if, uh, I, I want you to know, I'm very lucky at rolling dice. And I said, as long as we're rolling the same dice, I don't care. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll be fine. And, uh, he beat me. He was very, he was very lucky at rolling the dice. It was great fun. That reminds me of a story. So Alan was playing in the war at sea tournament and he was playing this little kid. Right. It may have been me. <laughs> I used to really pick on Alan. It was so much fun. And um, the person was using the Mediterranean strategy. So I assumed he was killing the, the, 
whoever was, I think he was killing the Germans, I forget. So I, I assumed it was Alan killing this little kid, right? So I go, wow, Alan, you've really beaten this poor kid up with this Mediterranean strategy. <laughs> and Alan goes, uh, he's the one who's winning. <laughs> <laughs> he's delivering the beating. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was cool. It was some real little kid. It was, was fun to pick yeah. on Alan. Yeah. <laughs> He, uh, he, I remember he had a big personality. That's, yeah. that's what really struck me. Was the... He was always happy, though. Yes. Alan was always happy. Yeah, yeah. he had a great, a great attitude. That's, yeah. that's yeah. right. So it, it didn't feel so bad being beat by Alan. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then, of course, he went on to great things. So actually, uh, fun, just another funny story about Alan and how kind he is. Uh, I made, I, a friend of mine and I designed a, um, we designed a party game. Uh, that relates to music and music titles. And a, and a big company op- optioned it for a year, and we were hopeful they were going to print it, and then when the option ran out, they released it. So I called Alan, and I said, would you give me an intro to Hasbro? I'd like to talk to them about the game and see if it's something they'd like to do. And he did. He gave me an intro, and, and they listened to me, and they took my call. And you know, they had no, I, I had no business on being on the phone with Hasbro. Uh, and, and so, uh, Hasbro ended up not taking the game for a host of reasons, but, uh, another big company's publishing it, which I'm ecstatic about, but, but he was wonderful and very helpful and as kind as, as, as you probably know him to be. So he was always happy. Yes. Yeah. And he wrote that, uh, there was a great, uh, uh, a great piece he wrote for the general, uh, on, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but he wrote with some frequency. Uh, it was kind of funny, a funny Yes, he used to write the funny article. Yes, yeah, yeah he was good. He yeah. was great. So um, th- it sounds like there were a lot of full-time people at Avalon Hill at the time. There were. So, um, and some of them came and went, but uh, they did have a lot of full-time people, and they played games for a living. And then, um, then SPI came along, and they bought games from SPI. And then Origins came along. Don started Origins. And so we started going to conventions. And then uh, we had a softball team, the Avalon Hill softball team, that played uh, one game a year against SPI. <laughs> so uh, it was kind of fun. Mark Herman at dinner was talking about that game. Yes. And he said that uh, that the Avalon Hill crew was much more athletic yes. than the SPI crew. Well, two of us played semi-pro baseball. Isn't that but, great? But Mark remembers well the – we had won every game. We won a few before they finally won one. And we were actually in extra innings. They had the bases loaded and two outs. And we were winning by two runs. And Mark hit uh, a scorcher that would have been a home run if I didn't catch it. Oh, that's But terrific. I caught it. He remembers that. <laughs> so it was kind of cool. It left a mark. Yeah. What a cool time. Uh, you know, what an interesting time to be in, in gaming and, and to be an insider, right? I mean, I watched from uh, – from from my little bedroom in Cincinnati, Ohio, so I never got to see and touch that stuff except at Origins. So we never really considered ourselves insiders. We were just like young guys playing games. You know, it was it was kind of interesting. So you go down for the weekend or yes. or just a day? A day. Yeah. yeah. And play games. And play games. And yeah. it was a pickup environment, just anybody would play anything or did you have to bring We did that and we play tested and Don also ran tournaments. Right. You ran these little mini tournaments. Right. So So playing all the games that are WBC games now, right? Uh, well, most of them don't get played anymore. Is that right? So they were the old classics. And uh, then new games started to come along in the 70s. And, of course, things really exploded after that. Right. So, um, so, so Battle of the Bulge, was that a part of the... Yes. The 65 version. Battle of the Bulge 65. That was Randy Reed's favorite game. Yes. Right. Right. I remember that game well because it... It, it it enforced in my head how important Bastone was, right? Yes. That that you 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 know you can you can do all you want at school, but until you yep. play the game and you see the map and you see yes. that everything passes through Bastone, yep. then you understand why you'd have to say nuts. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> to the to the to the surrender request. Yes. And of course, they had the general on the box. Yes. Well, no, he wasn't on the box, but he was on the rules. Yes. Yeah. General yeah. McAuliffe, yeah. So where did you pick up your affinity for the Battle of the Bulge? And- um, so I came across Avalon Hill Games my freshman year at college. Uh, that was D-Day. And so 
I drove to Avalon Hill during Christmas break and bought all their games. That they only had five, and so it was. Uh, I bought Africa Corps, D Day, Stalingrad, uh, Waterloo, and Battle of the Bulge. That's great. And Bismarck. That's yes. That's the what first Bismarck. we played at college, and we wore the game out. So, uh, Battle of the Bulge was like the ultimate strategy game. It took the longest, and it had the most concepts. The other games all used the same combat results table. But Battle of the Bulge had its own combat results table. So it was uh, the the ultimate back then in the 60s. So it took longer than to play than D-Day? Uh, about the same. About the same, yeah. 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 The D-Day was 50 turns long. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. It was a good, uh, it was, it was, it was, at the time, it was, it was, it was cutting edge. It was, yeah. yeah. Well, that's all that we had. So it really, everybody that saw it at college would, they all wanted to play because we, we had risk. And, and when war games came along, everything, everything changed. So I worked on Battle of the Bulge, um, 81, uh, made an accurate order of battle for a regimental level game and battle of bulge 81 was fun to play it uh it was a long game but uh randy heller invented an eight turn tournament scenario that was balanced and so that was played for many years at uh origins or uh avalon con or all the don cons and that was played until bitter woods came out so uh Randy Heller took Bulge 81 and improved it to Bitter Woods. State of the art. It was more state of the art, and uh, I helped him. I helped him on Bitter Woods, so that was essentially like Randy said. It was the uh, update of Bulge 81, and Randy was actually a play tester for Bulge 81. So I I didn't do many games because I I take too long doing a game so after bulge 81 i only did one other game until i worked on bitter woods and that was siege of jerusalem in 1988 for i did that for fred Schachter and don that was a tough one don says you only got five months for this <laughs> and i take a long time when i'm making games but we did pretty good on that one right no that's a great one and and a lot of units sold i'm sure because it's today it's played Right. And they're they're going to redo it, good. So, but not change it. We're going to improve it, though. So, who would publish it if it was redone? Compass. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And Fred's working on that. Fred Schachter. So, oh, you got great. the originals in there. That's terrific. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. So, so the you uh, Bitter Woods was published what year? Do you remember? Um, uh, 1995. 95. And a big step from 81. Do you think from? Big, uh, yeah, no question. The order of battle was the same as Bulge 81. And, um, but it added chrome and a pretty new map, state-of-the-art map, and state-of-the-art counters. Uh, and uh, the game flows really well. So it has a lot of time pressure to it. So it's still popular. I think it's in its ninth printing. So it's a good game. And so Randy was the designer of that. I was the developer. Now, on A Time for Trumpets, I'm the designer, and Randy is the developer. <laughs> That's great. So I've been to Constant World Expo for six years, and it seems like every one of those six years I've seen you working on uh, Time for Trumpets. Six years. That's and correct. I'm not sure that was the name six years ago, but... No, I, I didn't call it that. I'm, uh, I just called it Battalions in the Bulge. Mark picked the name. Mark Simonich picked the name. What's that right? He goes, you don't have a name? I said, no. He goes, can I name it? I said, sure. <laughs> so he named it. Right. Yeah. And it's a, there's a book, Time for Trumpets, but is it about the period or the bulge? Oh, it's about the Battle of the Bulge. Okay. And it's by Charles McDonald. Right. Who wrote Company Commander, also in the Battle of the Bulge. Oh, great. Because he was at Wilershire. Uh, he was at uh, Rocherath and Crinkelt. And... I thought it was okay to use that as a title because I'm mentioned in the appendices for working on the order of battle. Oh, that's great. So it's just okay. Right, right. No, it's uh, it's it's common as you look back. I mean, you think about 
so many games that are named from books. From books, yeah. Right, absolutely. Uh, Fire in the Lake being the one that pops into my head, yeah. but but certainly many of them. Um, so so you've been working on. I've seen you working on it for six years, but you've been working on Time for Trumpets, which is, which is by the way, uh, on P500 at GMT Games. Yes. So they're going to publish it. But, you, but you've been working on it for more than six years. Since 2004. Wow. So because I take a long time, and the more I search into things, then the more I find and the longer it takes. So... Um, I also still work for the Army, so all of this has been done in my spare time, and uh, I commute to, I, I, my wife and family live in Olympia, Washington, but I commute to Fort Wainwright to work for the Army, so I'm up there three weeks a month, and then when I come home, I have one week to work on the game, so it's that's why it's been taking so long. I do have a lot of uh, smart gentlemen that are working on the game. Randy Heller, John Devereaux, uh, Jeremy Osteen, John Clark, and a bunch, bunch of playtesters. So all veteran monster gamers. So we've put a lot of time in because we, we want it to be uh, historically accurate but fun. The other thing I think that, that makes it hard, I would suspect, is that you've selected a very large map and very small unit standard, which requires more detailed work, right? I mean, it's is it is it battalion level, company level? Battalion level with some companies. So the um, the Americans are almost all battalion level, with companies at the beginning because they were spread out. They weren't holding a continuous line. The Germans are battalions except for the armored fighting vehicles. They're companies. So that gives us about 2,000 combat counters. And uh, the problem you have when you go from a regimental level game to a battalion level game, you're going to increase the size of the map. You're going to double the width from 34 miles to 68 miles. But when you go from a regimental level game, which is three units per division, to battalion, you go to about 15 combat battalions per division. So you increase the width by two, but you increase the number of units by five. So it, it's a fine thing to make a game where the attacker has mobility and can get through the enemy line in a reasonable manner and not turn it into a trench warfare game, which no one is going to want. So it took a lot of playtesting, six years worth, for this to work out. And the time frame of the German progress, we want it to be plus or minus like five miles per, per turn so that it it sort of mirrors history. It's, there's an allusion there to history, but you can do better, a little bit better, or a little bit worse. And if, if the, somebody screws up, you do really good. So we've got that built into the game. So that's the amount of, of turf that you expect to be exchanged in the course of a turn or uh, a day? Or? Well, let's, let's take, for instance, the first day. The first day has three turns. The morning, afternoon, and evening turn. So there's four turns per day, approximately six hours each. Well, the Americans have all these strong points spread out along the whole line. They've been in them since September, some a little later. And some of these places, that they've, got, they've turned them into mansions underground. So when the Germans attack them, the artillery doesn't do much. And... Um, so they really slow up the German advance in the beginning. So for the first three or four turns, the Germans make little progress. And of course, when the play testers are first subjected to this, their attitude is, though, this sucks. You know, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> and then I said, you got to wait. You got to get rid of all these strong points. When you get past the American strong points, you're, it's what, 
you're going to start hitting the wide open spaces, and that always happens, and then they're happy. Right. So. Right. So they just have to be patient enough yeah. to get there. You got to slug your way through those those early turns. Right. So, <clears throat> when you started thinking about this 15 years ago, fundamentally. Yes. W- were you thinking uh, company battalion level and the large map? Yes, battalion level. There was no need to do a regimental level game right. because Bitter Woods was so successful. I'd already worked on that one with Randy. It's right. a great game. Why waste time trying to do another one of those? Right. So f- from our standpoint, and um, the system used in A Time for Trumpets is Bitter Woods. It's Bitter Woods with a boatload of chrome. Mm-hmm. So a lot of players who've never played can pick it up in one turn because the, all the basics are Bitter Woods. Right. And um, so it's not really difficult to read the rules, although they're longer than Bitter Woods. Uh, you can get into the mechanics immediately. So it is a battalion-level game. So I was particular in making sure that the command and control is built into the game. So having dealt with the Army and their war games, command and control is really important. So when you look at the game map, you'll notice that the divisions or the cores have a certain color. For example, of course, the SS, they're black. But um, so the first SS Corps has, in, in, in around its efficiency rating or morale, is a background color. And all the units in the first SS Panzer Corps have that color. So you can determine exactly what a core is from a distance. All those units will be like a small juggernaut with that same color. And if you look at the uh, the XLV11 core, that second Panzer and Lair, that has an orange background. So you can see that little juggernaut as it moves. And that f- you can keep track of your command and control because they're color-coded. And the divisions have to stay within the command range of their commander, their leader, and then that leader has to stay within command range of his corps, and that corps has to stay within command range of the, the the army general so that you have the formations together. They can't go skipping off and, and I'm going to lend these guys to this other corps so they can get higher odds against St. Vith. That doesn't happen in a real war, so we've got it designed so you can't do that in this war game. So interesting. But you can still play it. It's fun. And it's not on, it's not onerous. It's the same command and control system that is used in Vakdam Rhine, 1977. So people don't realize that Joe Balkowski and Danny Parker did that all the way back in 77, command and control. But all the units were the same color. So you had to look with a magnifying glass <laughs> to see which formation they were. Right. That's why I color-coded these. Right. The same thing I did for Siege of Jerusalem. Right. All the legions and the factions are color-coded, so you can see from a distance which units belong to which formation. That's great. And then supply rules, critical, right, in the Battle of the Bulge. Crit- but critical but simple. Basic supply rules, just like Bitter Woods. Uh, you trace... Uh, your supplies supplies go to a headquarters, that and all head the supply that goes to one headquarters is totally irrelevant from a sp- supply line that goes to any other headquarter, because at battalion level they trace their own supply lines. They did not trace their supply to a division. The each battalion had their own supply line to the rear, so. Um, a headquarter for a division is the basic um, way you would trace supply. A battalion traces the supply path to the headquarters of the division, and the division then traces a supply road to the edge of the board. It's just basic, like in so many other games. But it, that is tied with command and control. So there are two different things you have to trace, command and control and supply. Supply is only traced in the pre-dawn turn, just like it is for real. In a, in, a, in a battle, the units draw their supply 
before the day starts. They don't get to keep going back and getting some more. Now, if they're short, they'll send runners back for ammunition. So we only do supply once a day. If you're in supply at the beginning of the day, you're in supply for the whole day. So you don't have to be tracing that on every turn. Right. And that's how the Army thinks about it today when they game that's it? What the, yes. Right. They game it. They, they draw supply in the morning before right. they start their operations. Right. So how do you think about combat resolution and, and uh, really the, when the, where the bullet meets the... Okay, so we do combat. It's the same exact combat result table as Bitterwoods. Same. It's the same. Identical. With um, attrition built into the table. So in Bitterwoods, attrition is built in after... It's built into the table after a certain number of days. In uh, Time for Trumpets, you roll two dice when you conduct combat, a red die and a white die. The red die is only to determine if there is attrition on the attacker. So if you look at the combat result table, you'll see a highlighted one on a, to the left of the combat result, the same combat result that's in Bitter Woods. So if the attacker rolls that the two dice, and he sees that red die match up with the red circled number on the CRT, he takes attrition from his frontline combat unit with the highest morale that's involved in the combat. If there's more than one, he can pick. So if there's a, at odds three to one or lower, there's a 33% chance that the attacker is going to take an attrition hit. So I had to put that in after the first year because you know how gamers are. They're going to game the system <laughs> so they never take a hit right. when they're attacking. Right. So we had to put that in, and it, it causes attrition. Now, you have to keep track of what you're doing better. So then after another year, the attackers would always take their attrition from their infantry units. You know how they, you know how gamers are. They want to preserve their tanks. So I put an asterisk on one of the attrition numbers. So now if you hit the one, the highlighted one, that's attrition on a frontline combat unit. If you hit the one asterisk, the one with the asterisk, you've got to take it on an armored fighting vehicle. So that put an end to that <laughs> idiosyncrasy. Right. And uh, it causes the Germans to have to be careful and husband their resources so they don't right. uh, kill their units with too much attrition. Just over-attacking yes. and thus the attrition. Yes. Very interesting. Of course, and now there's artillery. So there's all the artillery units. The Germans start with about 150 artillery units on the map, battalions. And um, it's pretty congested. So we didn't need uh, traffic jam rules. <laughs> when you first, <laughs> when you saw all those, you, you couldn't move. Right. You were stacking his three. <laughs> just couldn't move. The, it was all filled with units. So right. um, players have the option. They can put all those units on the map, or they can take the artillery units off and put the regimental counter on. And we have artillery park cards, which show the individual battalions. And when they shoot, they can look, they can shoot each individual gun and rotate it to show that it's fired. Or they can shoot the whole regiment together, which is what a lot of people do do. And um, so you have all this artillery built into the game. And it, it functions in two ways. It adds combat factors to the attack or defense, just like Bitter Woods. However, I put uh, the shock combat, which is... Um, uh, it's different in Bitter Woods. It's more asymmetrical. In A Time for Trumpets, since we have all the individual battalions out there, if you are able to mass 26 combat factors of artillery only as the Americans, because they have a special artillery system with great spotting and communication, you can put time on target on the enemy. Now, the Germans and British can also put massive fire on, but they need 36 combat factors, not 26, because they just couldn't do it as well. Right. In fact, there was only one German field artillery group that was capable of doing that during the Battle of the Bulge, where every American field artillery group could do that. 
So you add the combat factors, but if you have enough combat factors, you can roll on the shock table to see if the defender or attacker is shocked. And that, of course, reduces their combat capability. So we built that's built into the game. Right. So is combat capability different than morale and combat strength? Combat strength is based on how many guns they have, how many men they have, the lethality of the guns, etc. So take, for example, the 106th Infantry Division. It has the same number of guns... Tank, not tank, they did have a tank battalion. The same number of guns and men as the 2nd Infantry Division. So their combat factor is 5 for a battalion of infantry. Same as 2nd Infantry. But the efficiency rating, which is a measure of morale, training, equipment, uh, whether they have experience in combat, that for the 106th is a 3. But for the Second infantry, it's a five, showing that they're a veteran unit. So 106 had seven days basic training, and they were thrown in right in front of the Germans. Of course, they didn't know that was going to happen. So when you, you do have combat, you add up the combat factors to determine odds, and then you look at the efficiency rating of the highest attacker and the highest defender. If the attacker has a higher number, he gets a die roll modifier. If the defender has a higher number, he gets a die roll modifier. If they're the same, there's no die roll modifier. So that's how we determine troop quality. And that's used in a lot of games. Right. So you talked, to, you talked about order of battle and how yeah. you're a stickler for details in the order of battle and you want it to be correct. I can imagine that, once again, going to this incredible level of detail, right, at the battalion company level, that it must have required tremendous additional research from what you previously done. Years worth. Wow. So um, three years ago, I decided that we would put all the anti-aircraft battalions in. So I, I tested anti-aircraft for the Army, so I knew a lot about anti-aircraft, and I also knew that they were used in a ground role for the U.S. Army, but the Germans really used them in a ground role, much more than the Americans did. So I figured we should include the anti-aircraft. But to just put it in for a ground role would be unrealistic. So uh, John Devereaux and I first had to determine how many units there were, what they were, and what their composition. So we agreed three years ago we would spend one year to do the research on anti-aircraft battalions. And uh, between the two of us, we found every unit history for the anti-aircraft battalions in the Bulge except five. Now, that's over 100 battalions. And uh, from that, we were able to determine where they were, et cetera, what they did. But we can't just use anti-aircraft in a ground role. So we had to put air units in so the anti-aircraft would have an effect against the aircraft. And you do have, at the beginning of a game turn, we have a mutual air phase where the aircraft, based on 50 sorties over the bat, uh, 25 sorties over the battlefield, if for every multiple of 25, the army will get a squadron, with, that's what a squadron is, uh, they will get a squadron or one aircraft counter to do things they can strafe, provide ground support, or intercept. And uh, we put that in because we had to have something for the anti-aircraft guns to do. So we have this system. It's probably the... People say it's the most comprehensive in a bulge game. It's really not difficult. You, you get your aircraft. You decide your missions. You're going to strafe or not. If you strafe, you get to attack everything in a seven. In a, you pick a hex, you attack that hex and the six hexes surrounding. You strafe them. Uh, if you have any aircraft guns there, you're likely not to strafe them because you might get shot down or aborted. So, the main purpose of anti-aircraft guns at that time in the war was to protect headquarters and artillery. So. That's what you ought to do with them. If you don't, 
and the enemy strafes your headquarters or artillery, they can be disrupted. And that means they can't shoot, and your headquarters command and control range range is cut in half, and it puts your guys out of command. So you have to play this little game within the game with the aircraft. And it, it takes about five minutes. The mutual aircraft phase takes about five minutes because on the 17th uh, morning and afternoon turn and the 18th morning and afternoon turn, there's only four craft, four aircraft for each side. That's all the sorties over the battlefield. So it takes five minutes. But it adds chrome to the game and uh so it took us a year we put that in at first it was too powerful so we backed off a little bit and now we've, we've got it down pretty good we we play tested it at winterfest uh in february and those guys were able to do it with no problem so weather was another important component of the yes. battle of the bulge so this is the through? key thing that enables the Germans to uh, get through that line when, although we've only increased the width by two, we've increased the number of enemy units by five. So if you read the official accounts, you're going to find page after page of the fog prevented the enemies from seeing each other. So uh, I've built that into the game. We, we also noticed that the the weather was different in different parts of the Ardennes. There's the um, Hoven, which is a high plateau, a high swampy plateau, a lot of fog. Then there's the Schnee Eiffel, the snow mountains. They have snow every day from the 16th to the 23rd in history. Then there's this place called Little Switzerland. That's in northern Luxembourg. That's another little snowy place. So we tried a lot of different things and uh, the easiest way to handle it was separating those three areas, the Hoven, the Schnee Eiffel, and Little Switzerland. Little Switzerland is in the 7th Army area. The Schnee Eiffel's in the 5th Panzer Army area, and the Hoven's in the 6th Army area, 6th Panzer. So we have army boundaries. We roll for atmospheric conditions in each of the three army areas. They're either going to be dense fog, no zones of control, one chance in six. Fog, there's going to be three chances in six, or it'll be clear. You never knew what was going to happen. And you roll for those atmospheric conditions in the three army areas, and 67% chance of fog in the pre-dawn and morning turns. The Germans are able to ignore Allied units, not all. And uh, the Allies can... Let their, they can stop holding their breath on the afternoon turn. That's always clear. So they know that the Germans aren't going to be sneaking behind them on the, that turn. At night, a little bit of stress returns because there's no zone of control in the forests. That's the effect of night. This is all based on what actually happened during the Battle of the Bulge. And they had these great stories where the they were just getting ready to have a battle and a fog bank rolled in and they lost sight of each other and there was no battle. Or a snow squall came up. That happened in the Schnee Eiffel lot. It happened at Bastogne. They were just starting to shoot at each other and a big snow squall hit and they couldn't see each other. And they, the battle just stopped. So when you have snow squall conditions or dense fog, if you roll doubles on the, the red and the white die, Attackers lose sight of each other. No combat. It's awesome, <laughs> right? The Germans hate it because, it, especially when it's on a seven to one and they're going to kill the guy. It's awesome. <laughs> but the guy was saved by the fog. By the fog, it happens occasionally. So, it's just enough to tick the Germans off and <laughs> and to throw that historical flavor in. Right. That's terrific. Those those personal accounts. Yeah. They're so important. Absolutely. So. Um, what when you talk to people about uh, time for trumpets, there are a lot of serious bulge gamers, right? I mean, yes. Is, 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 as far as any ground combat, it's been gamed as much as any other area I can think of. There's three games that get made over and over: <laughs> Battle of Bulge, right? Waterloo and Gettysburg. <laughs> okay, if you're going to make one of those games, you better know what you're talking about, right? 
So right. So it's a well studied group. But yes. So what do you hear? What do you hear from them? What 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 are the things that they want you to talk about? Well, generally they come up to ask questions, and it's always they're trying to get away from me because when I start answering their questions and I go on these just long tirades of information, <laughs> they realize that this guy's nuts. Let me get out of here if I can. <laughs> So I have a lot of information on this. Right, right. So the person that can argue with me is uh, people that can argue with me are Joe Yaust, me and Joe. We can argue with each other. Mark Simonich, he knows a lot of stuff, and Danny Parker. So Randy Heller likes to argue with me, but Randy only uses general sources. So when we have a disagreement, he goes, Bruno, you're going to have to explain this to a person who only uses general sources. You can't go into all this detail. So <laughs> that's, that's his way of getting rid of me. Now, now historically, GMT Games is also, has also had a, a playbook with a lot of detail about the history and, and, and your notes and your perspective on it. Are you, do you plan to do that here as well? Uh, almost. Okay, so the way I've written the rules, which people don't like, is I write the history of the rules. People don't like that. But if I explain the rule with the history in it, they don't have to go looking for the notes, and I don't have to answer their questions. So, for example, um, I, Richard Berg does this. If he can do it, you got if you know what you're doing, you could probably do it. So... For example, I explain the rule on night combat for the Germans. Normally, when you fight at night, it's a column shift left. That's bad for the attacker. However, when the 1st SS Panzer, 2nd SS Panzer, or 2nd Panzer attacks at night, they get a column shift to the right. So they were trained to fight at night because they had to avoid Allied air. The reason the other German divisions don't get it is because... Uh, they were Volksgrenadiers. They were not trained very well. Uh, most, except for 26 Volksgrenadier, most of them were thrown together. Um, the Panzer divisions, the other Panzer divisions, 116 and uh, 12 SS and Lair had all been committed recently and taken losses and were stocked with Luftwaffe personnel who were not trained to fight at night. So they don't get the combat advantage for night fighting. So in this game, you have to rest your division or brigade one turn per day. Now you can skip that for a day and get fatigued. Fatigued only, only hurts your morale. You still have your combat value. And the Germans actually did that in the beginning. They went a few days without resting. However, what that does do to you, if you don't rest on a day, that means you have to rest two turns on the next day. So you're going to be out of combat for two whole turns. If you don't rest when you're fatigued, you're out for the whole day. So you can keep pressing if you want, but you're going to reduce your combat capability you're going to pay for it later yeah so there are four turns a day but generally they can only attack three turns per day so what you have to do what the germans should do is attack with um, most of their divisions during the pre-dawn morning and afternoon turn rest first ss panzer and second panzer sometime during the morning or afternoon so they can fight at night. This keeps the allies on their toes. And also, they get a combat advantage at night. So you have to keep pressing. If you don't keep pressing the allies on every single turn, they're going to form a line and you're never going to get through. So you have to, you have to play it that way. After doing all this research, um, if you were to talk to someone who didn't know a lot about the Battle of Bulge but was interested... What sources would you steer them to? Where would you where would you suggest that they read? Okay, so um, they'd have to read Hugh Cole's book, The Green Book, The Battle of the Bulge. If they can get through that one, it's <laughs> 660 pages with a nice lot of nice maps. Right. Okay, I've read that more than 20 times. Wow. And I've highlighted, I have three hard copies and one electronic copy. They're all highlighted to death. <laughs> so that's why I had to keep getting new ones. 
because if you highlight them so much, you can't tell what's important anymore. So I've read that more than 20 times, and it's amazing the amount of information is in there. You don't catch it all the first few times. Uh, after that, you'll, there are a number of U.S. Army studies that you can read, like, for instance, the performance of the 2nd Armored Division and the 3rd Armored Division. That was written by the Armor School uh, during the Battle of the Bulge. And then there's the unit histories. Every unit history you can get your hand on, which there are hundreds. So read the unit histories, taken notes, taken excerpts, and highlighted the ones that I couldn't buy. That the Americans are easy because they won, they got a lot of material. The Germans, on the other hand, don't have a lot of material. Uh, they do have a lot up until the beginning of the battle. Once the battle started, they didn't keep records. So uh, there are some, but not a lot. The 12th SS Panzer kept some records that are pretty good. And then the books written by the commanders are very important. If, if you get those, you'll get information out of those. It gives you the progress of the units. You need to know that so you can design the game, so you can sort of match the progress generally. Then there are these. Um, then there are the captured German documents. Uh, so I have been through every single one of those numerous times. They're the documents that were. Uh, they interviewed the German generals. The uh, U.S. Army Europe interviewed the German generals after World War II and made manuscripts. Wow. Okay, so I have access to every one of those online. I pay for that. And as a result, I have copied that information and used it in the order of battle. Interesting. So this is all. Uh, now, you asked me a general question, but I gave you a detailed answer. Right. That's the problem with <laughs> if you're going to deal with somebody like me on this. I, I get lost in the woods. Right. General books are interesting. Uh, a Time for Trumpets by McDonald. U. Cole's book. These are not general. They're actually detailed. Um, the new book from the English major uh, historian, Steel and Snow. It, only half of it is about the bulge. The first half is the background building up to the bulge. I like that book. It's pretty good. So um, I would say they're the more important books, and they give you a really good flavor about what's happening. If you want detailed combat information, then you want to read Lion in the Way. That tells you how the 106th, 424th Regiment really held up the Germans around St. Vith. Although they denigrate the 106th for surrendering, two regiments surrendering, the uh, 424th did really well. Then you've got the history of the 95th, 99th Infantry. They, got, they didn't get wiped out, but they took massive casualties. They were a green division that stood up to the 12th SS Panzer, and um, they got highly decorated. Then you got the 28th Infantry Division, wiped out. They sacrificed themselves to stop the Germans from breaking out. And uh, they didn't fight anymore for the rest of the war. Um, the uh, history of the 4th Infantry Division, they fought well, the Bulge. In fact, they knew the Germans were going to attack. And so they were waiting for them on the 16th. But they didn't report it up the chain of command because every unit that did was ridiculed. So the general of the 4th Infantry called everybody in and prepared them for the Germans to attack on the 16th so they don't get surprised. So people, a lot of people don't know that, but that's why they were able to hold off the Germans in the South. Um, uh, so many books, I, I, and you can download stuff now from the Internet. It's just more and more stuff comes out every year. It's hard to believe that they keep finding this stuff. Then there's the three books on Piper. Um, uh, they cost a fortune now, but you could get them for 35 bucks when they came out. And uh, it's Tigers in the Midst. Uh, yeah, Tigers in the Midst, Volumes 1, 2, and 3. I have those. And it traces Piper's route. Great deal of information. So the only really nerdish thing I do with that is I have um, about 20 units on the 16th morning turn of the Germans. They come on at the roads that they enter 
actually entered, and I make them come in in their exact march order. <laughs> and who uh, was oh Nathan Nathan Kilgore was just dumping on me for ma- putting that rule in just this week. And he goes, "Why the heck did you do that? Nobody cares about that." I said, "Because I found the information. I'm putting it in there. <laughs> it's only for one turn." That's right. So I put it in there. That's great. I love it. I love it. Now, what about – so there's been a lot of video movies and TV about uh, Battle of the Bulge, right? Yes. It started with the original movie. That was a horrible uh, movie. Yeah, it was terrible. It was so the, horrible. The use of yeah, – Henry use. Fonda won the Battle of the Bulge. <laughs> he, he actually landed his, his uh, grasshopper. That's what it was. It was a, a battalion. It was an artillery battalion observation plane. Every American artillery battalion had four grasshoppers. Piper Cubs, with a major who was a liaison officer who could communicate with the artillery battalion. So that's what Henry Fonda's flying around in. He lands the thing and goes in a German tank. Like, that's really going to (laughs) happen. So it was a stupid movie. It was silly. But it was the only movie we had. Right. It was fun. It was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But fun and silly. Telly Savalas was in it. That was cool. Uh, Yeah, that's right. Anything with Telly in it was great. And then there was, um, I think about the movie Patton, right? That was good. Yeah. At one point, uh, certainly he presided over the... That was definitely a good movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then... And so Patton knew the Germans were... He knew the Germans were going to attack. He knew it was And he said, the worst thing we could do is leave this front static like this... It's just inviting the Germans to attack. So he had a plan in case the Germans attacked. So when they did, he just implemented the plan. That's why he was able to do what he did so quickly. Right. Interesting. So he was ready for it. Yeah. Now, there's a similar situation with the 2nd Infantry Division. So there, on the night of the 15th, they captured Weilerscheid Crossroads. And this is a... Um, a dual prong attack to get to the Roa River dams. The 78th Infantry Division is attacking Kesternich, and um, 2nd Infantry is attacking Widerside Crossroads, and they're going to meet at the dams. Well, 78th took Kesternich, and most people think the Americans, because of that, held Kesternich on the 16th, but the Germans counterattacked with three battalions and took Kesternich back at midnight. So when the 16th came, they still had Kesternick. Now the 2nd took Weilerscheid Crossroads on the 15th. And the Germans attacked on the 16th, just when the 2nd was cleaning up at Weilerscheid. And General Robertson requested permission to retreat. He was the commander of 2nd Infantry. And General Hodges said, no. We just took that crossroads. You're not retreating. So... Robertson asked for permission to retreat numerous times, and he was rejected each time. So he wasn't allowed to retreat, but he implemented his emergency plan in case there was a German offensive. So he had his units start to do things in preparation for a retreat. So he sent his engineers to fortify. He uh, he snuck one of his regiments out of the out of the uh, Weilerscheid Forest to fortify, and when he finally got permission to retreat on at 11 a.m. on the 17th, then he, his plan was already implemented. He was able to extract the 2nd Infantry. The only reason he was given permission to retreat is because Piper just drove into Stav a lot, and that idiot Hodges realized that, oh, maybe this is a big offensive. <laughs> so... That uh, Robertson was able to extricate the Second Infantry. He only had one road out of the forest, and because of his foresight, he got the Distinguished Service Cross during the Battle of the Bulge, which is just one level below the Congressional Medal of Honor. So he had a plan. He saw. He it. had a plan, yeah. and he followed through with it. He had that same kind of plan for when he was in the Schnee Eiffel, in case the Germans attacked, because they were really exposed. He had a whole plan to to extricate his regiments in the Snay Eiffel, and he gave that plan to the 106th Infantry. But you know they were only there for a couple of days. He never had a chance to even read the thing. Right, much so they got practice. trapped. Right. Yeah, no doubt. Interesting. So the other video, the implementation that I think about is Band of Brothers. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So and and a lot. Uh, yeah. On, on Bastogne, right? In Definitely. Yeah. yeah. A great book. 
a great movie. So, of course, you know, they can only show so much. But so they wake up the 101st. First, they get to 82nd because they're more prepared. So they leave six hours earlier than the 101st. And they're supposed to be heading to Spremont. And then the 101st takes off six hours later. They don't even have their equipment. They A lot of the guys don't have guns. Uh, they put them in 380 trucks. A lot of the trucks don't have tarps and bows, which means they're exposed to the weather. And they're standing up in the backs of these trucks. So these 380 trucks take off six hours after the 82nd Airborne. But before they leave, the orders come down for the 101st to reroute to Bastogne. But they they don't tell McAuliffe. So when the 101st takes off, they're supposed to assemble at Werbomont, you know, like 20 miles north of Bastogne. But when um, McAuliffe gets about 10 miles from Bastogne at an intersection called Boyd de Hobbymont, he decides... He's going to visit General Middleton, the 8th Corps commander, to see if he can give him an update on what's going on. And when he gets there, Middleton says, what's took you so long? You should have been here by now. And at that point, McAuliffe finds out that the 101st has been rerouted to Bastogne. They didn't know. So they sent 35 Jeeps first, full of MPs to hunt down and reroute the 380 trucks that was driving to Werbermont. Now, McAuliffe's staff, they didn't find this out, so they went to Werbermont. And Gavin, who was the acting corps commander, had to come down to Bastogne to meet with Middleton and McAuliffe so that everyone be assured, would be assured that, yeah, the 101st is actually supposed to come here. What that did was spread the 82nd out a great deal because they just lost uh, 12 regiments of infantry that were going to be a part of that line up near uh, Spremont and Werbermont, but they needed them at Bastogne. So if McAuliffe hadn't made that uh, impetuous decision to go get a briefing from McAuliffe, from Middleton, excuse me, they all would have went to Werbermont. The Germans would have got to Bastogne before they did. So, you know, there's a great story about from McAuliffe's mother about why he said nuts, because he was not allowed to cuss. And whenever he, whenever he, I think he cussed once when he was young, and he had his mouth washed out with soap. <laughs> so he always learned to say nuts. That's what his cuss word was. Right. So it's natural for him when the Germans say, <laughs> you know, instead of saying F you, he right. said nuts. Isn't that great? Yeah. Right, and it meant the same thing as far yeah, as he was concerned. Same thing as far as he was concerned, That's yeah. terrific. Well, that's a that's a great place to stop it, Bruno. I, I okay. appreciate you taking the time to yeah. talk about this. I, it's clearly a passion project, and, and uh, I know many people are looking forward to get their hands on it. Yeah, this is good. You realize I could burn your machine out with this, <laughs> this information, right? Well, I, I believe you could. I believe <laughs> you could, and it would be great. So I have enjoyed talking to you, so I appreciate yeah. you taking the time. Okay, thanks, Alan. Thanks. So that's a wrap for this podcast. I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games group on Facebook for discussion of the podcast. Leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. Thanks to the Visalia, California-based band, Slow Season, for the intro and outro music. Check them out on Facebook, Spotify, and iTunes. Now close with a special thanks to Bruno Sinigaglio. And that's it for me. As always, I knew the weasel was wild, but what made him so mad at Marco the Omnigamer? And I'll be back soon.
Okay, so what what so what happened is Tom Shaw would um, uh, go out and get ringers, so people who didn't work for Avalon Hill, <laughs> so that he could make sure they could they could beat up on SPI. Right. And SPI, they had like three or four guys who might be. I mean. Mark Herman was really in good he shape. He would hit a home run every every single time. That's the only way they got their runs, okay? <laughs> and um, uh, the, they had like four guys. The rest were automatic outs. Right. So it was kind of funny that they <laughs> at, were actually able to play as well as they did, but they wanted to win so much right. that uh, – And they actually they won, won once. They uh, well, More than once, yeah. I yeah. remember when they won – Joe Balkowski was ecstatic. We finally beat these guys. <laughs> it was funny. So, but I got to tell you, I didn't tell you this one because it, it's been heard enough times. But in one of the games, the game that I robbed Mark Herman, right? I had a fractured uh, uh, wrist, ulna, ulna. Oh. Okay, so I had my arm in a cast. Oh. So the game's coming up, and. Don says, you got to play. I said, I got a broken arm. <laughs> he goes, you got to play. Play with the cast on. I got the cast taken off by Dr. Zapala. I didn't tell him what I was going to do. And I got a wrap, and I wrapped the whole thing up. And I was, this is the truth. Don's got the scorebook. I was six for six. I was leadoff hitter. <laughs> six for six with six runs scored. <laughs> In an extra inning game, it was like twenty to nineteen, the final twenty to eighteen, the final score, right? So I was six for six, and I make the game-saving catch. But because West Coates hit a two-run homer in the eighth inning, wet game on extra innings, Don gave him the MVP. <laughs> that was a bull thing, if there ever was one. You had earned it with the broken arm. A broken arm. A broken arm. That's so good. Anyhow, game-saving catch is always you're automatically. The, the MVP. It's what would be on ESPN. Because you lose the game if I don't make this catch. Right, right. Absolutely. Whatever. Absolutely. Don, he, Don always <laughs> says I exaggerate this, but Mark Herman remembers it, so it's true.